Sexual calling, paragraph number four. It says, Others not elect, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved, be they ever so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. As we begin this morning, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day that we have to gather around your word. And as we study this morning, I pray that you would show us the great truths. Father, that those things that uh, we may find shrouded in some mystery, but know that behind them all there is a God who can do no wrong and always does that which is right. Father, we thank you for this time of study that we have every week to be able to look into your word, to be able to discuss the things that we see. And Father, help us this morning now as we study not only the confession, but even more importantly, we study the passages of Scripture and we see what your word has to say. Father, we thank you, we praise you for this great opportunity we have. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So as we come to the final paragraph of chapter 10 of Effectual Calling, uh, we have, of course have dealt with uh, some of the most difficult topics that have been contained in chapter 10. Uh, but this morning, I would say, probably is also a difficult topic to uh, fully discern. Um, the notice there, the paragraph is dealing again with uh, referred to those others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit. Um, if you have a copy of the confession, you probably have a footnote there or a number that directs you to uh, three different passages. Uh, Matthew twenty two fourteen, Matthew 13, 20 and 21, and Hebrews 6, 4 and 5. We're going to talk about those to some extent, but primarily this morning, I want us to take for our text Matthew 22. So if you'll find Matthew 22, and we're going to look at the parable of the wedding banquet. And of course, as you're turning there, just a great reminder that when we're talking about a parable, uh, we are talking about the teachings that the Lord specifically gave unto believers. He gave unto those who knew him. And so he's speaking in parables because it is the, the disciples who were going to be able to discern and understand uh, what exactly he was speaking of. Now, over the years, uh, many have taken this parable uh, for various different applications. There's been many that have taken it to, um, to spearhead evangelistic campaigns. There has been many that have used it uh, in the sense of uh, taking one or two verses as, as a rallying cry for a camp meeting type of an environment. Uh, but I want us to stick to the context, of course, and to uh, look at this in, the, in the, the way in which Jesus wrote this, why he wrote this, and make some observations, especially with regard to how it deals with the confession in paragraph 4. Um, now, that, it's that first phrase of dealing with common operations of the Spirit towards those who are otherwise not elected. Again, that's a complicated uh, stew there. You've got this idea that the operations of the Spirit, you've got God's ministry, the work of God moving, but yet it is not moving to the place of regeneration. 
Um, and so the framers of the confession uh, use this, this passage, Matthew 22, as one of uh, the texts that talk about the common operations of the Spirit, yet a refusal to come to Christ. So as we think about this paragraph this morning, I want to also think about the subject of they would not come. Uh, there is a direct reference here between an invitation being given and people responding to that invitation, some coming and others not, others refusing to acknowledge or accept that invitation uh, by the one giving the invite. So as we see this passage, it, it points us to Matthew twenty-two fourteen, which says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, now again, that verse by itself uh, really lacks context. If we just take that verse and we start to build a doctrine around that, we're going to find ourselves uh, really backed into some type of a corner that we're going to have a difficult uh, way of getting out of it. However, if we read it in the context, this parable of the wedding banquet, and I do want to read the first 14 verses because this is where that parable is contained. It says in verse 1, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Would somebody mind grabbing the front door for me, please? Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither? not having a wedding garment. And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So the exposition of this, the overview, the design, the scope, the principle behind this parable of the marriage supper is to set forth, first and foremost, this gracious offer of mercy and salvation. There is without question this invitation based on God's mercy and this invitation to salvation. The invitation is being made by God. He's being pictured here, of course, as a king, but it's being made by God. And it is in and through the preaching of the gospel. Primarily, Jesus was dealing primarily with the Jews in this particular context. Now, there's no question that the Jews throughout history, going all the way back into the Old Testament, had firsthand witnessed the operations of the Spirit. They had witnessed God working. They had witnessed God moving. They were, were told biblically they were given the first oracles, yet they would not come. 
Now, when we think about the overview of what's happening here, of course, we see that we need to observe that it was a king who made this wedding feast. The same one giving the invitation is the same one who made the feast. Uh, In addition, for someone to refuse to come to this when a command was given and there was great honor, there's an implied honor to those who were bidden to come. Uh, to, in, to refuse that invitation is an insult to not only the preparer, but the one who gave the invitation. So now, had the one who had invited them just been an ordinary person, all right? So if, if Jesus just meant, this is just an ordinary king, this is just an ordinary person, if that's what he had meant, um, it might not be your responsibility to come. Um, you might be invited and bidden to come to some kind of a get-together, a party someday, uh, whenever that day comes. And that party, that invitation may be given by an ordinary person. It may be a person of prestige. It may be a person of importance. But ultimately, if you refuse that, uh, there really is no real harm done. In other words, you refuse that invitation. You say, yes, it's a prestigious man. Yes, I have opportunity to go to the, the king's house Uh, but I'm really, I'm not giving up or losing anything. But this king, uh, not only did he prepare the feast, not only did he do the invitation, but he also sent servants out to invite the guests to this marriage. So he's taken really three steps. He's prepared it, he's done the inviting, and he's also sent out servants to bid them to come. So this was not just this general invitation that went out and do with it what you will. He specifically deals uh, with this, uh, these invitations. Now notice that this is referred to as a marriage feast. Now in the parable, again, parables um, are not given so that the unbeliever understands God better. The parables are given primarily because the parables were given to the disciples who were capable of discerning. You cannot discern the true meaning of a parable if you do not know Christ. Now, you can come to some some interesting conclusions, but parables were not intended to drive people to belief. They were given to the disciples who would be able to discern them and understand what was actually being said. So if we just looked at this on the surface and said, okay, what's, what's happening here? We have a king and we have a marriage feast and his son is getting married. That's, that's just the surface level and that's just a basic, really not spiritual understanding because I can come to that conclusion. Okay, so the Bible talks about a man has a, a king has a wedding and he's, he's putting together a party and he is inviting people and it's his son that's getting married. So I could begin to build a lot out of that. And people began to refuse the marriage, the wedding invitations, and they decided they didn't want to come. There's so much more happening here than just this picture. Now, Jesus is using an ordinary event to prove or to elaborate upon a spiritual truth. So the marriage feast is not some ordinary marriage. The marriage feast actually is a reference to the gospel. And the gospel is being compared to a feast. It's being compared to that because that is the means in which God is drawing people to himself is through the gospel. So not only is this gospel the marriage feast to which we are invited, it's the feast not only of a king, but its invitation is being given by the king of kings, being given by creator God. 
Now, if we refuse to come to that feast and come to him through that command, we are committing a direct act of rebellion against the authority and the majesty of God. So to to deny that invitation, to refuse to come, is to deny the invitation of an almighty God. So the people were called. There's no question there were people called, but they wouldn't come. Now, in application-wise, we realize today that what we have to do and what our responsibility is, is that regardless of how people respond to the gospel, we have an obligation to continue to give the gospel, to preach the gospel to every creature and to leave the results up to God. There will be people in our life, no matter how many times they hear the gospel, no matter how many times they hear the calling, will refuse ultimately to come to Christ. They'll hear it hundreds of times. God's never given us the responsibility to actually force or to persuade, but simply to give the invitation. Now, the gospel being compared to this feast, and we also, there are some things we can compare that when we talk about the gospel, we compare it to a feast. We know that in a feast or in a gathering where, where there is food being provided, there is plenty and there's, there's variety. There is, there is all sorts of things happening. Typically, a marriage feast is an event that is full of joy. It's a, it is a joyful event. It's meant to be something that people are, are happy to be there. This marriage feast has been given and being put on by a king. A king who is not just an elected king of a society or of a town or of a country, but the king of kings and the lord of lords and all the magnificence that comes into that invitation. You're talking about the greatest invitation a man can ever receive is the invitation to come to Christ. Because he himself gives the invitation. To this marriage feast or this gospel supper, God invited... Again, primarily the context here is the Jews. He invited them to come, and the servants who went forth to invite them were the prophets, the apostles in general, and specifically John the Baptist. A primary ministry of John the Baptist was to call the Jews to repentance and call them to God. Now you've got to keep that in mind, that this this parable primarily is dealing with with Israel. It's primarily dealing with the Jews. And so we see in those first four verses, we see the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, made a marriage for his son, sent forth his servants. They were bidden to the wedding, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Now, he has put all these things. He has, he has invited, he's prepared, he has set out. And you'll see that verses 5 and 6 show what primarily, again, contextually, the Jews did with the invitation. They made light of it. And went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. To make light of it, is a significant statement regarding the Jews primarily because significance is is that the Jews as a general rule or as a general understanding refused to come to Christ. 
They refused not only to come, but they began to hold the gospel of Jesus Christ in contempt. In other words, they didn't just refuse it. They almost began to imply we would never acknowledge Christ as the way of the gospel or the way of salvation. So this phrase, to make light of it, is a, it's a serious accusation. It's, this is not a light thing. This is not like uh, sending back your RSVP to that wedding you got invited to and said, we will not be attending, and you move on with life. This is to refuse the great invitation. This is to refuse the invitation that's being given by the proven Messiah. Now again, I began by telling you there are mysteries we, we have a hard time understanding. We've got God bidding. We've got the invitation going. We have all these things happening, and yet all these things are flooding into our mind, but God has to make them willing. God has to make them willing. But we also need to remember that God is sovereign, yes, but man is still responsible to respond to the call. Now that is the great mystery of God. If God is sovereign... Doesn't God just robotically make all that are his come to him? No, we've learned that through our studies of chapter 9 of the Confession and chapter 10. That is that great mystery of God that man has been struggling to try to come to the conclusion for for centuries. How can I come to something God doesn't make me willing to do? Now again, remember, even when we go back and use the example of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, it says, there's always the discussion Who hardened Pharaoh's heart, himself or God? The answer is both. It does say biblically that God hardened his heart, but you cannot deny it also says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. They are both, there's both responsible parties there. So as we look at this and we consider what's happening here, we see they make light of it, but then also it says, and the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Now you've got some serious, you've got serious things that are happening here regarding those that have refused him. Notice it says in verses 7 and 8, But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their cities. Then saith he to the servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. Now something just happened between verses 8 and 9. And if you don't study your Bible, you're not going to see what just happened. What just happened here is we see God actually changing and moving from primarily the ministry going to the Jews to now switching over to the Gentiles because of the Jews' refusal to come. Okay, now how do we know that? Because we compare Scripture with Scripture. So what we understand happening is that God is wroth with the response of the Jews. God is wroth. He's angry with what's happened here. The armies of God are sent forth to destroy, and it is, it is really, there's a reference here to what happened and what would happen to, the, to Jerusalem when they would be overrun by the Roman soldiers. There was great tribulation. There was great persecution coming. They, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And who... Is the, who is the author of the wrath? It is God Himself who is sending the army to His own, the Jews, and He's saying, you refuse to come, and I am pouring out My divine wrath and My judgment upon the Jews who refuse to come. That's the proper context of what's happening in this marriage feast. Now again, there are, there are human struggles that we have because we begin to understand that these things... Uh, seem to contradict one another. 
However, we know if we take the scripture as a whole, we begin to understand that there cannot be a denial of God's sovereignty and you also cannot deny man's responsibility. So there is an invitation today to repent and believe the gospel to every single person who is under the sound of my voice. That is a command. God is, God is commanding you to repent and believe on Christ. Now notice he uses an interesting phrase. He says, go ye therefore into the highways and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. The highways is a reference or a, a, a reference to the Gentiles. Now, again, there is nothing more despicable. You have to keep this in mind. There's nothing more despicable to the Jew at this time than to invite the Gentiles to receive the gospel that they rejected. Now, think about that's quite a quandary. The Jews didn't want him, but they certainly didn't think the Gentiles were worthy of the Messiah that they didn't believe in. It's kind of like being envious of something you turned away. You turn away something and somebody else takes possession of it and then suddenly now you're concerned. Well, you didn't want that. So God in His sovereignty turns from the Jews primarily. Now He doesn't completely do away with them, but now He does something unthinkable. He says, I'm going to invite the Gentiles into this. And He tells the servants, and this is, this is not without significance, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. Go out in the highways, find as many as you can, and invite them all. There, this is upon the Jews' refusal who were invited to that marriage feast. Then notice what happened. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found. Now here's one of those other spiritual, biblical quandaries. Both bad and good. <laughs> Both bad and good. That's quite an interesting invitation now. And it's very clear that the Bible says both bad and good because that's going to give us the context when one of the guests is questioned. They're questioned why they're there without a wedding garment. So, the wedding was furnished with guests. Now you have, again, you've got this parable and you've got this giant, you've got this giant thing we're learning here, right? You, you, you've got all these guests sitting there. These are all that were called, but they weren't all necessarily brought into the kingdom of God because we're going to see one of them is going to be questioned and said, how did you get here? It's an, it's an interesting thing that's happening. So the servants gathered the weddings furnished, and the, when the king came in to see the guests, now who's the king? The king is God himself, king of kings, the lord of lords. The king comes in, he saw a man there which had not on a wedding garment. That tells us there's something that every one of these guests has to have. Now we don't see the room, we don't see what God is seeing, but I want you to make note of that. The king has his eye on every one of the guests. He has his eye on every single one of those who were there, and he knows everything about every single one of them. And he identifies one, and he says unto him, How camest, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. So the king now coming in to see the guests, 
demonstrates to us that there is this inspection, this spiritual overlook, this looking into the guests, which Christ makes, and he's looking into his churches even today. Okay, and I want you to keep this in mind because we're talking about the common operations of the Spirit. There are things that the Spirit is doing, but yet a person may not fully be brought to Christ. Now, apparently, he must be, he must be there because the Bible says, how did you get in here? So the command to him, we see, the man is speechless. He doesn't offer a response as to how, as to who, as to what. He's speechless. There is such seriousness to this, it's almost palpable. I, I mean, th this, this is one of those passages where I've seen this butchered so badly that you don't, you don't palpably feel the seriousness of what's happening here. Like I said, I've, the last time I heard this preached, I heard this preached and taught in a camp meeting rally type situation that was used to rally the troops. It didn't have anything to do with what God was actually really saying. And I hope you hear what I just said. <laughs> there, there's, there's, the, there's the rallying sermon that maybe it has its place. But if you're using a rallying sermon, please, for everything that is holy, use it appropriately. And use it for what's happening. Because this, this passage stands on its own. I don't have to add anything to this. If you read it and take it for what it's saying, it is so serious. It's hard to approach lightly because he's not dealing with a light matter. The man is speechless. There is no opportunity for the man to justify why he's there. There's no opportunity for him to justify why he doesn't have a wedding garment on. This is not a two-way communication. The king is not saying to the person that's there, uh, he just says why, but the man is speechless, and he doesn't pursue him any further. But rather, he pronounces a judgment on him. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This was a person that had the common operations of the Spirit enough, enough to recognize there's a God, enough to understand that there's some level of responsibility that I have to this God, but yet ultimately doesn't come to Christ. Churches are full of people who have had common operations of the Spirit but have never fully come to Christ. The wedding garment that needed to be on was the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way you're getting in. And the only way the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us as sinners is by His mercy and by His grace. And as we look at this and we, we begin, okay, I'll, just be, I'll be honest with you, in my humanity, my heart absolutely is breaking for this person. It really is. My, my, I, I, 
when I, when I hear this taken in this rally type sermon, I'm like, this is not a rallying. This is a serious matter. This man was cast and out by the king himself into outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is ne- nothing less than hell itself. And yet, this has been used to just, let's just use it as a rallying cry, almost like hell is something to trifle with. I think if we truly believe the brokenness of sin and the depravity of man, how we truly deserve hell, or for that matter, if we truly even believe there's a hell, there are churches that have now taken the stance, ah, we don't really think there's a hell. I think it's just a figure of speech. Again, just because it's in a parable doesn't mean that it's not holding great spiritual truth. Matter of fact, that's what's happening. So the command to bind and to toss out this unqualified person, that's important. He's unqualified. He didn't have what was needed to be there. To bind him hand and foot and to cast him into outer darkness plainly declares that the condition of such people who live under the light of the gospel, they enjoy the liberty the gospel believes or brings, but they walk with no answer to their profession. In other words, they have common operations of the Spirit, but they are not really accountable and they're not really submitted to God. There is no more sad condition than to think you have a wedding garment on, but you really don't. There are Christians who call themselves Christians all over this world who have been led to believe that they have the appropriate garment that gains them the appropriate standing with God. And yet, they don't. He's cast into outer darkness. What are some things we can think about? Well, we number, number one, we know that the gospel, it's free and it's full. We proclaim and preach the gospel freely and we preach it fully. We don't cut corners. We don't make it more palatable for people to receive it. We simply give the gospel as it is. Sadly, most people, when confronted with a gospel invitation, will disregard it. You're going to have those wonderful moments where God has clearly already prepared the way, which he always does, when you just get to, ben- you get to have the benefit of watching the conversion of a soul right before your eyes. Other times, probably most often, you're going to see it being disregarded. And I will tell you that one or two times that happens in your life, those are thrilling times to watch the gospel actually work in somebody's life and realize before you ever opened your mouth, and I don't mean this in a cutesy way, God had already been there. God wasn't waiting for your new plan of a presentation and making the gospel this exciting, more, more easy to accept. No, he'd already been there. He'd already done all the work as he has to do anyway. We just get to rejoice with the person who's now converted, who didn't understand it maybe minutes before, and now they've been brought into the light of the glorious gospel. Yet remember, there will be many that will make light of it, not just the Jews. But it also teaches us a bit about the preference which man in this world esteems 
his possessions and his money, his status as the highest thing to acquire. That's what often leads to the gospel's contempt. The illustrations given here about they went to their ways, one to his farm and another to his merchandise. The problem's not with the farm and the problem's not with the merchandise. The problem is, is that's where you're seeking your value and your self-esteem. It's more important than the gospel. Jesus, on more than one occasion, dealt with people in those very things, just like he dealt with the rich young ruler. When he, when he asked him the question, why callest me good? Because he knew the man had no idea what it was to be good. And he tried to give him the, paraphrasing, he tried to give him the spiel that he had kept the commandments from his youth up. Can I tell you this? You can live under the operation of the Spirit. You can know the Ten Commandments on the wall. And yet still, when you draw your last breath, you'll be cast into outer darkness. There are common operations of the Spirit. Just because you're feeling a stirring doesn't mean you're being brought to saving faith. That's why we're always told scripturally, examine yourselves. This is not a, I examined myself 15 years ago. You're continually examining yourself not to give yourself a lack of assurance, but to be certain that you've been brought to the real what the gospel truly does. I think there's also the lesson that those that are careless in a day of grace, which is now, there's no question in the day of judgment they'll be speechless. We have this idea, and I've heard this, I've heard people actually say, Christians, professing Christians and people who are not professing Christians, they just say, when I get to where God is, I'll just explain to Him. Folks, I want you to understand, we are all going to be speechless before God, believers and non-believers alike. If you think we're going to stand there as believers and rattle off all the good things we did, you're going to be on your face before God and you're going to call Him nothing less than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're not going to be explaining why everything happened the way it did. You are going to be speechless, but especially those that in the delight of the day of grace said, no, I don't want it. I've got better things to do. It's not going to be, I'll just tell God my side of the story and I'll convince Him to let me in. There are people that actually believe that. There are actually people who truly believe. We make fun of this, and maybe we shouldn't. They actually do believe that when they die, they're going to have to give Peter the answer as to why they should get into heaven. This is not a cliche. They actually believe that. They actually believe that they have to talk to Peter, and Peter's the gatekeeper, they say, and he's going to be the one to determine. Notice the king was the one. The king was the one who said, depart from me. It wasn't Peter. We also see the lesson of that God, through Christ the Son, takes notice of every guest. And by the way, He knows much, much more than any minister or preacher does. I would never just look at you and say, you're all redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I can't see you can profess, you can do, you can act, but I cannot see ultimately who you are, either in or out of Christ. 
Common operations of the Spirit will lead us to a place where we'll actually begin to convince ourselves, hey, I must be all right. I mean, I mean, look at me. It's, it's Sunday morning and I'm seated here. I mean, I'm, I'm at the 10 o'clock Bible study of all things. That's not, that's not what's going to be the garment. You see, he takes notice. There was only one person we're told of. And again, don't get into speculation. Again, these, I've heard, I heard too many of these rally camp meeting sermons. It's hard to, it is hard to yank these things out of my brain. We're only told in this parable that he sees one. Okay? Now that doesn't mean that we automatically jump to a conclusion and says, oh good, everybody's going to be saved except for one. No, the point is, is he in a crowd of people and it says there was many, he looked at the one who what shouldn't been there and said, how did you get in? That just teaches us that God's eye sees and knows all. And notice there was just that one person and yet he fell under the eye and the view of Christ. The next lesson is this. It's not just sufficient enough that we come to the feast, but that we must come clothed with his righteousness. They got into the wedding feast because they had the wedding garment on. We must be clothed in his righteousness. If we are not clothed in his righteousness, then that same dreadful charge that he gave to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness, you cannot be there without his righteousness. You do not get his righteousness on your own merit, by your own works. You only get that through the blood of Jesus Christ and through repenting and believing on him. There's an account over in Luke 14 and I know we're spending a lot of time on this this morning, on Luke 14, that gives us a, a similar account of this. Luke, Luke 14, verses 15, verse 15 says that, And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. And sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground that I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. The Lord in both of these passages is pleading and making this, this invitation well known. This parable that primarily begins with an application to the Jews, he tells them that many of them, indeed, in fact, all of them were called. They were all invited to this gospel supper, but with few, very, very few of them, 
actually was it found that they had sincere faith based on true repentance. There's no salvation apart from true repentance. There's a gospel out there that's being proclaimed that does not contain repentance. That cannot be the gospel. You cannot water down the gospel to just ask Jesus into your heart. And as long as you do that, you're good. Repentance means there's an acknowledgement. Not just an acknowledgement that, hey, from time to time I do a few bad things here and there. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, not perfect, but I'm not like so-and-so. Folks, can I, can I explain that to you as, as kindly as I can? Even using that term, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, is actually showing how lightly you're taking your sin right now. That, to me, more than anything, proves there may be a problem with your confession. If you're still saying, look, I'm not as bad as that guy. You're still in the throes of not understanding what sin actually is. Repentance brings you to a total brokenness of your sin and a brokenness of your unworthiness. Oh, you may not get altars filled with people preaching that, but I'm telling you, when a person understands and they come to true repentance, listen, there's no mistake about it. This is, this is what he is proclaiming. And among the multitude of those that are called by the gospel, we know that even being called under the gospel is going to require not just this I, I, got out, I got away from hell, but it's going to be a gospel that leads us into holiness and leads us into obedience. It's a gospel that leads us into something that is not just superficial, but something that is real and eternal. We obey the call and we come to Him. Now it is true, again, that these operations of the Spirit, and we're going to, talk, we're going to save this for next week, and we'll look at these other passages because now we've seen that first half, the operation of the Spirit. But then it's specifically in the confession says, yet not being effectually drawn by the Father. Again, our mind now runs to, okay, wait a minute, operations of the Spirit. Doesn't an operation of the Spirit automatically include being effectually drawn by the Father? No, it actually doesn't. So we're going to get into that next week because if I start that, I'm going to go for another hour. So we're going to stop right there. Okay, so this, this morning, let's just remember that, that aspect of this about the common operations of the Spirit. I think it's important for us to keep in mind uh, what we've heard and hear it personally. Again, the admonition's not mine, it's God's hear it personally about our own standing in God, the operations of the Spirit in our own life, and what that actually looks like. Okay? All right, so next week we'll pick up, we'll pick up the next phrase. Um, and, and again, that'll have its own set of challenges and questions, but we'll deal with that next week about not being effectually drawn by the Father. Okay, so let me stop this and we'll take a few questions if you have them today. And I'll attempt to answer them. And if I don't know, I will say I don't know.